you have a Bible, would you please take it and turn to John chapter 14. John 14, and we will consider the second part of this chapter, verses 15 to 31, as we continue to to study the upper room discourse together. Let's just kind of get our heads back into what we've been studying. Jesus began this first half of the upper room discourse by encouraging his disciples with these words, don't let your hearts be troubled. We said last week that their hearts were probably most troubled by the fact that Jesus was leaving and that they couldn't follow him. But they were also troubled by the weakness and the sinfulness that they saw in themselves. Judas's denial and, and Judas's betrayal and Peter's denial started to reveal cracks in their company. And they likely wondered what was going to keep them together. And not simply them, but this, this whole movement. How could they continue to spread the good news about Jesus, Jesus if he was going to leave them? How could they proclaim a kingdom when the one that they thought was the king was leaving? Last week we saw that the, the comfort Jesus brought to their troubled hearts was first of all rooted in the fact that the departure of Jesus was actually for their blessing. The, the blessing of not only a place in God's house, but the provision of the way to that place through Jesus himself. They were not to be troubled at the departure of Jesus because his leaving provided that place and the way to the place. But they were also not to be troubled because the departure of Jesus was for their present power. And in some ways, that's the theme that we're going to pick up today, that in, in leaving, Jesus was actually providing power for them in the present and for us. Because if they were troubled by the departure of, of Jesus and the, the cracks in their company, then they were also troubled by the prospect of carrying out this mission without Jesus around. Maybe you've had this experience of kids, maybe your parents have taught you something difficult, a hard task, or maybe at your job place you've trained on something difficult or just something that's really important that you, you don't want to mess up. And you're fine doing that task when the person who's training you is with you, when your parent may be with you or the, the, your coworker is, is with you. But then one day that person might say to you, okay, you're on your own. You're just, you're doing this by yourself now. And suddenly you feel like you've forgotten everything that they taught you how to do. Uh, it could be that the disciples in some sense were feeling something like that. And so Jesus wants to encourage them in large part because he wants to say that even though he is leaving, he's not leaving them on their own. Jesus is not saying, okay, you've got it from here. I'm out of here. No, he's saying, I'm leaving, but I'm not leaving you by yourselves. Remember that Jesus said in verses 12 to 14 that they would do greater works than he did and that they would do those things because while he was leaving, they could call out to God for help in his name and he would do whatever they asked. At the heart of that promise is the reality of the relationship that they had with God through Christ. And so Jesus is again telling us not to let our hearts be troubled in these, in these verses that follow, but here he's putting the accent on that relationship that we have with him. So let's take as our big idea today, don't let your hearts be troubled if you are a child of God. 
We could say it that way or even reverse it. If you are a child of God, don't let your hearts be troubled, whichever one you prefer. Don't let your hearts be troubled if you are a child of God. If you have a relationship with the Father, there's parts of that relationship that cause us to not be afraid. Throughout these verses, we hear Jesus draw a distinction between his followers, his true children, and, and the world. And the world does not see or understand or experience things in the way that the child of God does. So Jesus offers these encouragements in the midst of trouble so that they, we won't be distressed at his apparent absence or discouraged by our weakness or overwhelmed by what he has called us to do. So he says, don't let your hearts be troubled if you're my child. And then he makes it clear how we are different from the world if we're in Christ, if we're in this relationship with him. So let's read this passage and then think about who we are and how that keeps us from being troubled. John chapter 14, and let's begin in verse 15. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments keep them, keeps them. He, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have, comm- all, all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise. Let us go from here. I feel a little overwhelmed just reading that. There's a lot in there, isn't there? Uh, Just a little bit of a note. You see it ends here with this phrase, rise, let us go from here. Uh, We'll take that that as a signal that this is the end of what we would call the first half of this upper room discourse, and Jesus is going to transition in verses 
uh, or chapters 15 to 17 to some other themes, though he weaves things in and out. But for these verses for now, let me try to paint a picture of, of some themes in these verses and how I think that they fit together. So just look big picture with me for a moment at these themes, and then we're going to look at them each individually. One theme is, is love for God, that the child of God loves God, and specifically a love for God that's manifested in a keeping of his commandments. Did you notice that repeated a few times? If we love God, we will keep his commandments, and if we love God, he will be near to us and love us. That nearness is, is the second theme that we're going to think about. And then finally, if we love God, he's going to be near to us and we will know him. We will have a unique knowledge of him. That knowledge is, is this third theme. So as Jesus builds and expands on these relational components, he brings us confidence and, and comfort. Notice this phrase, if we love God. I don't think it's so much a conditional statement, but rather a statement of, about reality, meaning that Jesus isn't saying, if you do this, then I will do this. Rather, he's saying that for those who love God and are his true children, this is what is true of you. All of God's true, child, true children who have a love for God and, and, and experience the nearness of God and receive a knowledge from God, they, they do what he says. So these realities are ours if we are children of God and they bring us comfort. That's sort of a big picture. Let's kind of drill down into these. First, the first re relational reality that can bring us comfort is that we have a love for God. If we are God's children, we have a love for God. If we are children of God, we love him. And how do we know that we love him? We keep his commandments. Love here is more focused on actions than it is on emotions. There's a song where Andrew Peterson sings, love is not a feeling in your chest. It is bending down to wash another's feet. It's not a feeling in your chest. It's, it's shown by actions. As we think about the illustration of a parent and a child that seems to permeate this passage, we might think about a child who disobeys a parent. Now, there's a lot tied up in the disobedience of a child, but it's not wrong to see in that some sort of lack of love being expressed towards that parent. Or consider a marriage relationship where a spouse says the words, maybe every day, I love you, but then breaks that vow to, to love and honor and cherish or to be faithful. The word love then feels hollow. It feels, it feels fake. It's disconnected from, from actions. So the keeping of God's commandments are simply a natural outgrowth of true love for God. If we love him, we will keep his commandments. And if we don't, it's proof that we don't love him. Well, what are Jesus's commandments? I think it's interesting that we could say that the commandment is, is to love. So if we love God, <laughs> we will love God and we will love our neighbor as ourselves because that's how Jesus summarizes the law. Here in the context, though, I think of the teaching of the Upper Room Discourse, we could also say that the commandments of God are centered on loving our fellow Christians in the way that Jesus has loved us. Remember that from John chapter 13. As, as well as believing or trusting in God. Those are the works that God has called us to, to trust him. So if we love God, we're going to love one another as Jesus has loved us, and we're going to continually trust the Father doing what he says because we believe that his ways are for our good. 
Even as I say that, I'm reminded of this truth that so often sin is rooted in a lack of faith. We, we don't trust God's ways. We don't trust that what he says is for our good, and so we do the opposite of what he says. But if we love God, we trust him, and we follow his ways, even when they sometimes don't make sense because we know they're for our good. John picks up on this assurance piece in, in, the gospel, in, in 1 John, his other, one of his letters that he wrote, and it was written, he tells us in 1 John chapter 5, it was written so that we would know that we are children of God so that we would have a confidence in our salvation. And in chapter five, he says something similar to what we read here. Chapter five, verses one and two of First John, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father, or everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God, and obey his commandments. So love for God, love for God's children, they're all tied together. I think there's a reason maybe to pause here and say, do I love God? Do I love God? If we say yes, but then we look at our lives and we find that we don't keep his commandments, that, that we don't live lives of love towards others or lives that are marked by faith in God, then we need to pause and consider how strange it is for us to declare that we love God and then not keep his commandments for our declarations of love to not be connected to acts of true love and to following the commandments that Christ has given us. So for children of God, we will love God and our love will be seen as we keep his commandments. And then the second relational reality flows from that. It's this, we experience the nearness of God. We experience the nearness of God. As we think about the nearness of God, specifically in verses 16 to 20, let's frame it around two significant events or holidays. And the first is Pentecost. Specifically, I'm talking about the celebration of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 that saw the descent of the Spirit of God on everyone who had trusted in Christ for salvation. Because here, Jesus is beginning to describe a new reality that is going to arrive because of his departure. And that reality is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in all true believers that was first experienced at Pentecost. Jesus is pointing forward to that new reality. As Jesus describes this coming reality, notice he's talking about the inner workings of the Trinity. As Jesus asks the Father, and then the Father sends the Spirit to us. What an amazing thing that's going on there. It's a work that they are all involved in. Here the Spirit is, is first called another helper. I will send to you another helper. A helper different from Jesus and yet the same because he comes from Jesus and from the Father. His difference may be seen in, in, the, in the fact that verse 16 says he's going to be with us forever. Jesus says he has to leave, but he's going to send the Spirit and the Spirit will never leave. He will be with us forever. The word helper here carries the ideas of a, a, comfort, a comforter or an advocate. He's, he's one who is called alongside. You think about calling someone alongside you to, to help you. The verbal form of this word often means to encourage or to, to exhort. He's also called the spirit of truth. And I think these things flow together. As Jesus prepares to depart, he tells his children, don't be troubled because I'm sending you a helper. 
I'm sending you a, a comforter, and he's going to encourage you, and he's going to exhort you, and he's going to bring you peace. How? Because he's going to remind you of what is true. How does the Spirit comfort us? By being the Spirit of truth, the one that tells us what is truth. He will be an internal spring of truth in us, and that truth will bring us comfort. We see more about what the Spirit's going to do in verses 25 and 26. So let's just skip ahead to that. Look at those verses again. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So Jesus says that the Spirit will teach us all things and bring to remembrance everything that Jesus has said. Now, I think there's a specific application to the apostles here that does not apply to us. Um, because it says, I, I think it has to do with the, the writing of the scriptures, actually. Peter describes, I, I believe, what Jesus is promising when he writes this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. Peter, the apostle, says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter saw Jesus. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, and we were with him on the holy mountain, probably the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter's saying, I was there when Jesus revealed his glory. I saw it. And then in verse 19, he says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. More fully confirmed than what? More fully confirmed than being on a mountain and seeing Jesus revealed in all his glory. And what is the prophetic word more fully confirmed? It's the scriptures that have been given to us. He says, to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, this is the promise, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I think that's what Jesus is promising here, what, G what Peter is attesting to, that the Spirit made it possible for the writers of the New Testament, including John, the author of this gospel, to understand and remember and record the words of Jesus and the truth about Jesus. Why? Because he's the Spirit of truth. He, lead, he led the apostles into truth so that we could have the truth. And now he doesn't lead us to, to write authoritative volumes of Scripture anymore. That, that's over. The canon is closed. But the Spirit does teach us. The Spirit does help us to understand the truth that has been recorded through his inspiration. So here is the comfort for our troubled hearts. Remember, that's what Jesus is trying to do. He's trying to comfort our troubled hearts. It's this, that the Spirit is near to us, and the Spirit is going to help us to know the truth. You ever feel like you're surrounded by lies? that someone's always trying to deceive you or throw you off or preach some false gospel. If we have the Spirit in us, we know that we will not be deceived by false teachers. We will not be deceived by worldly wisdom if we love God and we're walking in his ways. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is in us and he's going to teach us and he's going to bring to remembrance what is true. It's going to help us see false doctrine when people start saying it to us. He's going to help us see worldly wisdom 
when it's being spouted to us. We will not ultimately be crushed even by our own dark thoughts. Why? Because the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and he's going to bring, keep bringing us back to the reality of our security as children of God. The trouble we face is so often because we lose sight of the truth. We forget. And so the Spirit comforts us. How? By being in us and leading us continually back to the truth of the gospel and to the words of Christ. We might begin to see why Jesus would say that it's better for him to leave. Because if his leaving means that every believer is given the gift of the very Spirit of God living inside them, then it means that every believer at every moment of every day can be comforted and led into truth by the very Spirit of God within us. There's a comfort then that is foreshadowed, that's promised, in, it's seen in, in Pentecost, but we're also given, I think, the comfort of Easter. In fact, it's, it's Easter that makes the sending of the Spirit at Pentecost possible. So where is Easter in this passage, you might ask? I think it's in verse 18, where Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. Jesus gives us these wonderful words, I will not leave you as orphans. Isn't that beautiful? I'm not going to abandon you. He says, I'm going to come to you. Now that, that reference, he says, I'm going to come to you. Now it could refer back, it could be back to the Spirit. It could be some sort of a reference to the, the Spirit of Jesus, or it could refer to the second coming. But it seems to make more sense if we take this as a reference to Jesus's appearances to the disciples after his resurrection, but before his ascension. I think that's what he's talking about here. He says it's going to happen in a little while, and while Jesus would not appear to the whole world, he would appear to his disciples. Also notice he alludes to the resurrection when he says, because I live, you also will live. So Jesus is offering them comfort, not simply by the fact that they will see him again, but that when they see him, he will be bringing them new resurrection life. The nearness of Jesus in that moment will mean that through faith, they no longer need to fear death because Jesus will have conquered it through his death and his resurrection, and he's going to appear to them and prove that. He's going to show them and comfort them in the sense that you guys no longer have to fear death. Look, I've raised from the dead, I've conquered death, and now you can have that comfort. If there's anything that could trouble our hearts in this world, it's, it's death. Death is scary. And there's times when it troubles our hearts, whether it's our own or those that we love. But Jesus has come to us again. He has resurrected and clearly appeared to his disciples who have recorded it for us by the guidance of his spirit so that we don't need to be troubled or fearful in the face of death. We can know that because he lives, we can live. Comfort in the face of death. What more could we ask for? The resurrected Christ gives us that. If we are children of God, we experience the nearness of God. He's come near to us in the gospel, proclaiming the hope of the resurrection, and he remains near to us in the indwelling of the Spirit. This leads to a third relational reality I want to give you, which is that we've received a knowledge from God. We've received a knowledge from God. 
I think this is one of the places where we see most clearly the difference between the world and the disciples of Jesus. In verse 17, the world does not see or know the Spirit, but we his followers do because he is with us and he is in us. We see the Son through eyes of faith and we believe his word and we know that the Father is in the Son and we are in the Son and the Son is in us. And the knowledge about all these relationships is made known to us in a supernatural way. In one of my favorite movies, Field of Dreams, there's a voice that tells Ray Kinsella that if he builds it, they will come. (laughs) And so he builds a baseball field in the middle of a cornfield. And suddenly, even though it's sometime in the 1980s, baseball players from the 1919 Chicago White Sox start showing up in his baseball field to play baseball. And he sees it, and his wife sees it, and his daughter sees it, but his brother-in-law thinks he's crazy because when he looks out, all he sees is an empty field. We believe in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We believe in the resurrection of Jesus, though none of us ever saw the resurrected Jesus with our physical eyes. We believe in the Trinity. We, we believe in the love of the Father for us. But when we say we believe these things, the world looks around and they see nothing. They, so they think we're crazy. <laughs> but the reality is that God in his kindness has simply manifested himself to us. He has shown us this truth. It, it's, it's nothing dependent on us. It's nothing rooted in us. But if we have believed, then it's because we've been given a knowledge by God through grace that the world simply does not have. As I think about it, things that could disturb us or trouble us, the, the mockery of the world causes Christians trouble sometimes, doesn't it? But the mockery of the world doesn't need to cause us trouble if we realize that that mockery stems from the fact that they simply don't have the knowledge of God's redemptive plan that has been graciously revealed to us. They simply don't see the beauty of the good news revealed in Jesus. Therefore, their, their blindness doesn't need to shake our confidence because we've been given the gift of, of sight, of, of knowledge. So we shouldn't be surprised when they call us crazy. But you know what else? We also shouldn't be surprised if one day they, they see Jesus. Near the end of that movie, after one of the players makes a deep sacrifice, Ray's brother-in-law looks out at the field and he says, where'd all these people come from? Because <laughs> suddenly he sees. Even those who say that we are crazy, one day they might say, you know what? I once was blind. I didn't see either. I didn't understand who Jesus was. But now I see. And it's all by the grace of God. So here's the pattern, I think. Those who love God keep his commandments. And these true lovers of God experience his nearness and have a knowledge beyond what the world can recognize. Let me just point it out so you see it in the text real quick, okay? Verse 15, there's the love for God. Verse 16, he says, then I will send the helper to be with you. Verse 16, the nearness is there again as Jesus says, I will come to you. And then also in in verse 17, it says, you know him for he dwells in you. And verse 20, in that day you will know that I am in the Father. So do you see this pattern? If you love me, 
then you'll keep my commandments, you will experience my nearness, and you will have a supernatural knowledge. That's the pattern. Notice it in verse 21. Love, nearness, knowledge. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. That manifest myself to him, I think, is that, that knowledge piece. You might ask, where's the nearness? I think it's the love of God there. I think the love of the, of, of the Father and of the Son is a reference to his nearness to us. He it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and reveal myself to him. That love is communicated to us by God's word. It's applied to our hearts by the Spirit as he leads us to know that we are loved by God. You are loved by God. Th- this kind of unconditional love can guard our hearts from trouble. You have someone that you know loves you. Does it make you feel just a little bit invincible sometimes? Because you know that you are loved deeply by that person? What if we could grasp God's love in that same way? Couldn't that guard our hearts from the trouble that comes into them? When we know that God loves us and that his love for us is rooted in Christ, not in our performance, we can begin to feel invincible in this world. We're not troubled by the opinions of others. We're not troubled by the opinions of ourselves because we know God's opinion. And what's God's opinion of me? He loves me deeply. Into all of this discussion, we have another question from the disciples, this time from Judas not Iscariot. He went through the rest of his life that way. My name's Judas. No, not Iscariot. (laughs) And so Judas um, has a question. His question, I think, seems to be tied to a misunderstanding of the kingdom that Jesus was constantly pushing against, namely that it was a physical kingdom in which he would reign on a physical throne. Judas wants to know how Jesus can manifest himself in such power in, in great power, and do it in a way that the world doesn't see. How, how, Jesus, can you show yourself to be great, but the world not notice it? That doesn't make sense. And in response, Jesus again draws the distinction between the disciples and the world. Those who love God and keep his word will be loved by the Father and will be so near to God that it's as if the Father and the Son have made their home inside of him, because they have through the Spirit. But the world, we see, The world who does not keep his word sees none of this. Again, it's a spiritual reality that they are blind to. So the kingdom of God is here. It's it's spreading around the world as the spirit indwells our hearts and as people are miraculously given eyes to see. But this kingdom, it doesn't show up on any maps. You can't draw the borders of this kingdom. There's no seat for the kingdom of God that's reserved at the United Nations gatherings. There's, There's no representative there. But the kingdom of God has been manifested to those who are given eyes to see. How will I do this, Judas? I'll do it through a spiritual kingdom. It's going to start really small. It's going to start right here in this upper room, actually, in a few days. And then it's going to grow. It's going to grow, and it's going to grow. And the, and the dwelling place of God one day will finally be fully with men and women. So we have this love for God, we experience his nearness, we've received a knowledge of him, and therefore our hearts are not troubled. Or we could say that our hearts 
are at peace. Let's list that maybe as a fourth relational component. We've been given peace through God. We've been given peace through God. Jesus says that he is leaving, but he's also going to leave something behind. I'm going to go, but I'm going to leave something here. What's he going to leave? Peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. It's shalom. It's a deep sense of well-being. And he gives it, he says, in a way that's different from the world. Because the peace that the world gives is temporary. The peace of the world just, it never lasts, does it? Or at least it's, it's limited. It, it doesn't affect every person. It doesn't eliminate every fear. But the peace of Jesus is, is rooted in eternal truth. It's tied to his abiding presence. It persists even in the face of death. Peace in the face of death. Therefore, our hearts don't have to be troubled. They don't have to be afraid because we're given the peace of Jesus. You remember what the angels declared at the first Christmas? Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. Jesus arrived to bring peace. The peace of God's nearness and knowledge, the peace of his love and his forgiveness. It's only found in the life-changing message of the gospel and faith in Jesus Christ. As Jesus draws this first part of his discourse to a close, I think he starts to summarize things in verses 28 to 31. Look at those verses again. You heard me say, Jesus says, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. So he's drawing things to a close, and he says, he's offering us some more encouragement. I think at, at the most basic level, he's saying, trust me. You guys got to trust me on this. I know you don't understand everything that's going on, but you just got to trust me. Specifically, verse 28 reminds us to trust that Jesus going to the Father is for our good. He's, he's already said that, but he's reminding them, listen guys, my departure is not going to lead to, to, should not lead us to be troubled, but rather to rejoice. We, the disciples were to rejoice that Jesus was leaving. Why? Because it meant that they would receive greater power from the Father. I'm going to the Father, and he's greater than I, and he's going to help you. The departure of Jesus is to strengthen our faith, not shake it, because he's in control of that departure. Even his apparent defeat at the cross was not an accident, but it was the plan of God. Therefore, we are to believe. In verses 30 and 31, Jesus not only calls us to trust him, but I think he calls us to follow him. This love for God and the experience of his nearness and the understanding of heavenly wisdom that is ours in Christ is what Jesus has modeled throughout his ministry. Think about that. Love for God, the, the nearness of God, and a, and a heavenly wisdom. Isn't that what we see in this gospel? And he shows it to the very end. Jesus knows what is coming. 
Verse 31, he obeys the, the commands of the Father, even knowing what's coming. Why? So that it's clear that he loves the Father. Jesus can face the coming of hours of his passion with peace because he loves the Father, he knows the Father's nearness, and he understands his plan. As I was thinking about this, I started to wonder if as we follow him, can we, can we say the words of Jesus in verses 30 and 31? If we are in Christ, can we say this? The ruler of this world has no claim on me. I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Is that something that I can say as a follower of Jesus? I think maybe. The ruler of this world has no claim on me. Why does the ruler of this world have no claim on me? Well, because Christ has claim on me. His, his spirit is the seal on my heart to prove it. I'm bought with a price. I am indwelt by God himself. I belong to him. The ruler of this world has no claim on me. And, and I love the Father. I love him because he first loved me, but I do love him. And therefore, I do as he commanded me through his power. And why do I do it? I do it so that the world might know that I love the Father. And in seeing that, that they would behold the glory of God in the gospel. Is that something we could say even to our hearts when they're troubled? The ruler of this world has no claim on me. I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father, that that's what we're called to do and to be. And if you're a child of God, then don't let your heart be troubled. Instead, find the, the source of your identity and how God has transformed you through the gospel. And then let the peace of God that passes all understanding guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Well, there's much more in here, isn't there? And I encourage you to continue to meditate on these words and even to hopefully think about this pattern of, of love for God, the nearness of God, the knowledge of God, and the peace that comes to us because of who we are in Christ. But for now, let's take a moment of silence and allow uh, God's Spirit to lead us into truth, to lead us into application in our own lives. Uh, and after that moment of silence, I'll close this in prayer. Father, we thank you that in Christ you have laid claim on us, that we are yours. You have sent your spirit as the seal um, to prove that. Lord, help us to, to love you with our hearts, with our souls, with our minds, with our, our strength, and to, to do what you command so that the world may know this, this knowledge that you revealed to us, that they too might see the beauty of the gospel in Christ. Well, we confess that often our hearts are troubled, that we are fearful, but would you remind us of, of the relationship that we have in you and, and what you've called us to do and to be and allow that to comfort our souls. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.